Welcome to the Monroe Church of Christ podcast. I'm Derek Glover, preacher of the Monroe Church of Christ in Monroe, Wisconsin, and I want to thank you for joining us. I hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment or a review on iTunes, and share it with a friend, family member, co-worker, or someone that you think would be interested to know more about our Savior, Jesus Christ. We've been in the midst of a series on what makes us different. We're going to continue talking about that this morning. We've looked at what makes Christians different than the rest of the world, than the rest of the religious world. We've begun to focus in a little closer on what makes uh, our faith tradition and the churches of Christ different than the rest of uh, the, the Christian landscape. And we do this for a couple of reasons. It's not to promote our ideas or practices as necessarily being better than others. It's not just simply to inform ourselves of why we teach what we do and why we practice what we do, because we're certainly being a little more broad than some of the more specific things that sort of mark our, our movement. But it is to look back at this movement that gave rise to what we call the Churches of Christ, also the Disciples of Christ and the Christian churches came from this movement as well, but it's to understand our history so we know where we're going. That's the first thing. We need to know our history a little bit. Why do we teach some of the things that we do, and, and why is that important? We want to we wanna be able to celebrate those things. So we have to know our history. And we've talked somewhat about the history of the, the Restoration Movement, the Stone-Campbell Movement, how we got to where we are now. And we're focusing on some of the teachings that have come from that movement that have carried their way forward that we... Uh, we still hold to and that we celebrate. We want to celebrate what it is that makes us different. Not because it makes us better or more right, but because we believe it and it is the best understanding we have of following God's scriptures and the word of God. Also because in our history and in our movement, there was always the push and the interest of unity of all believers, the fellowship of all believers. That term, Church of Christ, was a generic term used in the time of Thomas Campbell, Thomas Campbell in the early 1800s and the late 1700s to refer to uh, all Christians everywhere, just like the word Catholic at one time meant all Christians everywhere. And now that term is associated with the Roman Catholic Church. And our phrase, Church of Christ, is often associated with a particular viewpoint of Scripture. And I think, and, and there is a, a push... To, to do this, but it's to restore our original purpose in this movement. And I think that that's an, an important thing because the scripture is clear that the unity of all believers and the fellowship of all believers is paramount. God wants his children to be together. And in order for us to have greater unity, we must restore and understand the purpose of our movement. We must acknowledge the things that we do differently. True unity can't happen until we acknowledge our differences. And it's not acknowledging differences by pointing fingers, but acknowledging differences by celebrating them and understanding how we came to the conclusions we did, why we teach what we teach, why we should keep teaching it, and how we should understand to work with others who may teach something differently. So we must first acknowledge, and that's why last week we talked about our principles of autonomy, how the churches of Christ operate independently, and why we must really focus on securing that, because we talk about it but we don't always practice it. We say it, and on paper it's true, 
And yet, watch what happens when a church that has Church of Christ on their sign steps outside of the traditions of the Churches of Christ and does something different. Watch what happens in the publications that circulate amongst the Churches of Christ. Watch what happens in some of the pulpits in the Churches of Christ denouncing, writing letters, writing articles about this particular congregation. Do we really have autonomy if we allow ourselves to speak ill of one another for following a direction that they, we believe in our hearts is what the, the Bible teaches. There's room for teaching. There's room for educating. There's room for correcting error. There's room for asking questions. But there's no room for destroying one another and fighting with one another. We have too big a task in this world to be killing each other figuratively over our differences. So in order to have unity, we must understand these principles and we must hold fast to them. We preach autonomy. We need to also make sure we continue to practice autonomy and not lose that part of who we are. And today, we're going to continue this discussion by talking about another important thing that sets us apart, and that's our practices regarding baptism. Baptism was a part of the early church. We see that clearly throughout the book of Acts, through the letters that Paul writes, and through the things that Peter and John and others write in the New Testament. It was the common practice of the early church, and at some point, it began to fall out of practice. It began to not be practiced. In fact, by the time of Thomas and Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone, when that movement began, the practice of baptism had all but disappeared from the Christian world. Now, let's clarify a couple of statements here, a couple of words. That would first be baptism. That's a made-up word. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. Completely made-up word. Uh, if you look through that, to that word in Scripture, you'll see the word baptism there. But if you go back to the original text, the manuscripts, the Greek, that word is baptizo. That's a Greek word meaning to immerse. But when the Bible was translated into English, those who were translating it, recognizing that they didn't follow the practice of baptism nor teach the practice of baptism, nor had they been baptized themselves, sought to somehow justify their own choices and views. And so the translators, rather than translating it faithfully as it should have been to say immerse, in water, just transliterated it. That is, they took the Greek letters and put forth the English equivalent, so baptizo became baptize or baptism, rather than to immerse or immersion, which is the dipping in water, the full immersion in water. So, the Campbells and, and, and uh, Stone and others who taught in the early part of that movement worked to restore this practice of baptism as it was taught in Scripture and began the practice of immersion in water uh, for the remission of sins. It's unclear in some regard how uh, some of the early leaders in the Restoration Movement thought of baptism, whether they thought it was essential, whether they thought it was simply an important thing, whether they thought it was the point at which a person was saved or not. Some of them kind of go back and forth on it. Alexander Campbell is a great example. There are some things he writes where he says that baptism is absolutely essential to one's salvation, that it is the point at which we come in contact with the blood of Christ for the remission of our sins. There's other times where he says, I'm not totally sure if it's 100% essential or not. I think it's something every Christian should do, but it is not the point at which sins are remitted or cleansed from you. So he kind of waffled back and forth on that, but one thing he was consistent on is that he would not bind that teaching on any other Christian. He would still fellowship and welcome other Christians who didn't agree with him that's a really hard concept for us because 
I'll be honest with you, baptism is one of those teachings that I feel is kind of a non-negotiable. The scripture teaches me, and I understand it to be, that it's an essential part of becoming a Christian, that it is the moment in which we receive the gift of the blood of Christ and the cleansing of sin. That's how I understand it to be taught in scripture, and that's what I teach. But as I listen to the wisdom of Alexander Campbell, and as I look at other parts of Scripture and what it teaches about how believers are to interact and what it shows me about those who disagree is that for all of the importance that it holds in me teaching it to others, and I would never give it up teaching it, trying to encourage others to accept what I believe the Bible is saying. As Alexander Campbell said, I just don't see where the Bible gives me authority to say that another person is not saved. I will speak where the Bible speaks. I'll be silent where the Bible's silent, as Alexander Campbell famously encouraged. But beyond me teaching what I understand it to say and encouraging it in others and trying to correct it in others or encouraging them to accept the same, I don't see that I have the authority to go so far as to divide fellowship over it and to reject those as brothers who simply do not agree with my understanding of Scripture. Wrong though I think they may be, I will seek to encourage them and welcome them, and I'll let God sort out what that means in the end. But I will trust in the word of Scripture, and I will trust in their hearts. So what does the Bible say, and why do we teach it this way? Why do we believe it is an essential part of becoming a Christian, and why do we believe that it is the point at which someone is saved or their sins are remitted? Well, we first encounter uh, the very basic idea of this being essential in Acts chapter 2 often quoted, Acts 2.38. You can look at Mark 16.16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Uh, he that believeth not shall be condemned. Uh, there's some issues with, with using some of those uh, scriptures. Some people would want to throw out some parts of Mark 16 because they weren't in the original manuscripts. I consider them to be inspired writings still. We do have them. Uh, I believe in the authority of Mark 16.16. 16. But if you want to go somewhere that everybody agrees is part of the Bible then Acts 2.38 is where you go. When Peter preaches at Pentecost, he goes through the history and talks about Jesus, him coming to be the Messiah and him being crucified. And these people listening are convicted in their hearts that they have crucified the Son of God. And they say, what do we do? What do we do about this? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter there, in, in one of the first instances, makes the, the statement boldly that the answer to your sin is repentance. That's a turning from sin. It's a turning away from sin. It is, it is an absolute, it's, it's literally a 180, a turning from, going a different direction. So you are repenting, you are turning to a different direction and be baptized. And that command, if you, the, the Greek there is a little tricky because we have different, um, uh, there's different ways in which those words are put together as to who he's talking to. So it's like saying, if you read the original text, all of you repent, it's, that's a collective, all of you repent and every one of you be baptized. So there's a singular in there. So it's a little confusing if you were to talk to Greek scholars about how those how those words work, but the result is the same. And if you heard it in Greek, uh, or if you heard it as Peter was speaking it, you would have understood it to mean that all those who were listening, who were crying out, 
what do we do about this? They would have been under the same response of Peter. Repent and be baptized. Why? For the remission of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a challenging thing when we read further into the New Testament because we get to Romans. We get to chapter 6 of Romans, which we actually talked about uh, in our Bible class on Wednesday night uh, recently. And Paul is saying some things about faith, that we are saved by faith, that we are justified by faith, that our sins are forgiven because of our faith. Now, this brings about a really interesting conflict that remains a conflict today in the Christian world amongst churches, uh, and that is the idea of are we saved by faith or are we saved by something that we do? Now, I talked about this Wednesday night. I'll reiterate it here. Do not be drawn in to a false comparison between those two ideas. Don't be led to believe that James, when he says, show me faith without works and I'll show you faith by works, faith without works is dead. Uh, he, he, don't be drawn into the, an understanding that James, when he says that, is somehow in conflict with Paul when he says that you'll be justified by your faith okay, or the righteous will live by faith. Those two aren't in conflict at all. Go back and look at what Peter was saying when he said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Did he say to do that without any faith? No, because baptism apart from faith is not baptism. It's just taking a bath. What makes it different is the faith with which we do it. So there are those in the Christian world that say teaching baptism for the remission of sins is teaching works-based salvation. That is a misunderstanding and a misrepresentation of what it is we teach. And if it has been taught that way, we need to correct that error. We do not believe in baptismal regeneration. We don't believe that there's power in the water to save us or power in the act to save us. We believe that there's power in God to save us, power that comes through Jesus Christ to save us, and that we uh, take part in that power and in that gift in the act of baptism but it is faith which saves us. Let me put this forth to you. If one were to say that baptism is a work of man's righteousness, and the Bible clearly teaches that man's righteousness will not save you, works will not save you, therefore baptism is not essential. My response to that would simply be, what about repentance? Is repentance required to become a Christian? Is belief required to become a Christian? Well, you can find scriptures that say that, uh, that the works... Uh, of the works of God are to believe. And you can argue that uh, when Peter says repent and be baptized, how is baptism a work but repentance not? Almost every Christian would say that belief and repentance are essential components to becoming a Christian. And yet why is it that those are not considered works? In the same way we don't consider baptism a work. It's an act of faith. When Paul says the righteous will live by faith and he says that uh, you'll be justified by your faith as Abraham was justified by his faith, made righteous by faith, that is faith that saves us. He's not saying there's nothing left to do. In fact, he reiterates that in chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried uh, with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. We're going to live differently on the other side of that baptism because we did it in faith. 
even Mark 16, 16, some people will point to and try to apply some form of logic to it because it says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, he that believeth not shall be condemned. And they say, well, you take that second part, it's, it's unbelief and you're lost. Therefore, if you have those two things in the first half of the verse, the belief must be the more important one. Because if he, if he that uh, believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that doesn't believe shall be condemned, well, clearly the belief holds precedent or holds uh, prominence in that in those two things. Well, I, I think that's a bit of silly logic to say that that proves baptism is not essential because he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Yes, that's true. He that believeth not shall be condemned. That's also true because if you don't believe, you can't be baptized. Why would anyone be baptized without belief? So those two conditions apply to those who are saved, but those who are lost, you only need the one condition to be lost, and that's a lack of belief. So when we say we're saved by faith, we don't, we don't mean that we're simply saved by an acceptance of something as true or uh, a mental assent or, or just a, a, uh, an acceptance of the existence of God. No, faith is deeper than that. Faith is not just belief in something. It is the putting of your trust into something. And it does include, we believe, acting in accordance with that belief. So when we say we have faith or we're saved by our faith or we're justified by faith, we rightly define faith to include obedience. You look at Hebrews chapter 11. You see the writer there talk about all these great uh, heroes of faith. And, and they go through the list. And what is something they all have in common? Well, they had faith, but they did something because of their faith. Faith is not static. That's the point that James was making. Faith produces action. And we believe that in baptism... We come in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ and we are saved in that moment because it is that blood that cleanses. That's not a work of man's righteousness. That's a work of God's righteousness. Uh, nothing we do is going to save us, but God's grace shown through Jesus Christ will save us. And if we have faith in it, we're saved. And part of that faith response, we believe the Bible teaches, is baptism. Now, why do we teach that that's part of the faith response? Well, if you look at the whole of Scripture, you see a lot of parallels between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you look in the Old Testament, you see things like the Passover. You see that uh, God, in an attempt to liberate his people, had to bring about some death to the people that were oppressing them. And there was a way to be spared from this death, and that was with the blood of the sacrificial lamb. So here a concept is developed. The blood of the sacrificial lamb allows you to escape the punishment and the death and the destruction that is coming. We carry that forward. Jesus places himself in the position of that sacrificial lamb when he instates the Lord's Supper, which was then the Passover feast. He says, when you eat of this bread, you're eating of my body. When you drink of this cup, you're drinking of, of my blood. You're remembering me because I am the sacrifice now. I am the escape from the death passing over. So we see parallels that lead us to a conclusion that Jesus' blood saves and faith in that means, just as the Hebrews put their faith in the blood of that lamb, that they had to do something to demonstrate that, we too put our faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. But how do we get that on our doorpost? How do we come in contact and receive that blood? Now, if the Bible never said anything on it, we would accept that it's simply by faith and by living an obedient life in faith. 
but the Bible says a lot more. And it also uses some Old Testament stories to help us understand it. Let's start by looking at Paul because he talks a lot about faith, but we see there in chapter 6 of Romans that he ties faith and baptism together. That there is something that happens when we're baptized that is a demonstration of our faith, and it's the result of our faith. When we put our faith in Jesus and we're baptized, those two things go together according to Paul. Another place Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. He says, you are all the sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. You're the sons of God because of your faith. Now, what does that faith mean? Well, the next verse clarifies that. He says, you're all the sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So he again ties the two ideas together. You're, you're declared children of God because of your faith. But your faith demonstrated itself in the act of baptism. And in that act of baptism, you connected with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, if the Bible didn't teach these things, we wouldn't teach them. But we believe that in Scripture, we are led to the conclusion that baptism is a point in which we literally come in contact with the blood of Christ. I say literally. Literally in a spiritual sense. So literally, figuratively, if, you, if that makes sense. But, but something is changed in our spiritual nature in the act of baptism. And that's what we believe Scripture teaches. Now, I said in, in the Bible class, and, and I say it often, Scripture is pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is the Word of God. The inspired writings that we, we read and we study and we follow always point us back to Jesus. So what about Jesus? Well, we already talked about Jesus placing himself in his teaching in the role of the sacrificial lamb. We, talk, we talked about Jesus uh, teaching through his own actions, and he himself was baptized, he said, in order to fulfill all righteousness. He provided an example and a pattern for us. And he sent his apostles, and he told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. But he says in that same, in, in, the, in the end of Matthew, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He commanded his apostles to go and baptize as a part of their evangelism. So we see these things connected in Scripture by Paul. We see them uh, established and reinforced by Jesus. Peter also writes about him in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, drawing on Old Testament references. He talks about Noah. Uh, and, and that verse says, uh, who once were disobedient, while the patience of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built wherein a few souls, that is eight, were saved by water or through water, depending on how you want to translate that verse. They were saved by water or through water. The like unto, or the type, therefore, uh, like baptism, doth, doth also now save with you. I'm using a little King James language. That's how I memorized it when I was younger. Okay, But he says, just as Noah and his family were saved in the ark by the water, so too you are saved through baptism. Now, we say, well, Noah wasn't saved by the water. He was saved by the ark because he floated above the water. Well, yes, he was protected from the destruction in the world because of the ark. But what was it that divided the righteous family of Noah from the evil uh, and, and, and the soon-to-be-dead uh, corruption of the world? It was water. Water was the means by which God 
brought about a separation of the righteous and the unrighteous. It, you don't have, you can't carry the type anti-type all the way or it breaks down. So you can't say that those who are in the water were saved and those who are out of the water uh, are lost or vice versa because that's not the case. You have to look at it as Peter is demonstrating it, that just as Noah was saved by the water, so you are saved by the water. Not by virtue of, of who was in it in the story, but by virtue of this, that God brought water to destroy the world and the corruption in it. And that water was the dividing line between the salvation in the ark and the destruction in the world. And so too, water in baptism is the dividing line between the corruption of the world and the sanctification of the blood of Christ. These are the origins of why we in the churches of Christ teach baptism. We need to hold fast to these teachings and celebrate them because baptism is actually making a comeback. Baptism has been making a comeback in the non-denominational world, in the community church world, in the Bible church world. They're beginning to teach this more and more. And I think that's wonderful because there is something beautiful about it. When we get away from trying to understand baptism as a work, when we no longer allow ourselves to be drawn into this false dichotomy between James' understanding of faith and works and Paul's understanding of faith and works and see that those two actually do fit together, they're compatible concepts. When we begin to understand a practice of our faith, not as keeping rules and doing certain things of obedience in order to be saved, but when we see our life as being lived in an obedient and faithful response to the grace of God through Jesus Christ, I think we have a more clear and complete understanding of baptism, and I think we teach it better. I am so, so, so thankful for the study and the wisdom and the scholarship of people like the Campbells, Barton Stone, and others in that movement, others we'll talk about another time, who in an effort to bring about unity and fellowship of all believers also took a good hard look at baptism and said this is something we need to be teaching. I'm so thankful that that teaching carried on to us today. And I'm so thankful that the churches of Christ today continue to teach baptism as an essential part of salvation. With great respect and understanding, I accept those who do not teach it or believe it because that's what God tells me to do. The same scripture that convinces me that baptism is essential also convinces me that I don't have a right to, to separate myself from those who honestly and eagerly claim Jesus Christ as their Savior. I'll try to teach them. I'll try to study with them and understand them. But ultimately, I want to celebrate our differences and understand that we can be united with one another and let God sort out those differences at some point. Most importantly, I'm thankful that the Bible reveals this beautiful uh, tradition to us, this beautiful act that we take part in as a, as a part of our faith response, that we can be joined with Jesus Christ. We can be clothed with Christ, with the power of his blood, with the sanctifying power of his death and resurrection. And we can be raised to walk in newness of life. Until I understand the scriptures to teach me otherwise, I will continue teaching baptism as an essential part of the remission of sins. And I'll continue encouraging others to do so. With love and with grace, I'll accept those who differ, but I will continue to make sure that this teaching is a part of what we do in the churches of Christ. What a wonderful tradition that's been passed down to us, a rediscovery of something that was there in the first century, something that can bring us all together 
something that can help us feel more connected to God, something that can help us understand the story and where we fit in it. I think baptism is a beautiful thing that we teach. I hope that we, like autonomy and like the communion, which we'll talk about next week, I hope that we hold fast to it, continue to understand it more deeply, love it more richly, and share it with others more readily. Thank you for joining us for the Monroe Church of Christ podcast. We hope that you have found today's message to be uplifting, inspirational, and encouraging. Most of all, we hope that it helps you along your spiritual journey. If you have any questions or comments or would like to drop us a line, you can do so at MonroeWICOC at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you, and we look forward to you joining us next week.